Well, good morning, church. As Justin said, my name is Isaiah. Um, my family and I, we do attend Grace and Truth out in West Richland. And yes, Pastor Dustin is uh, our pastor out there. And I got to say, I'm a little bit uh, concerned that if you guys did have him here previously, how you would keep him behind a pulpit like this. Um, if you guys can remember him, that is, that is his style. But what a blessing to be able to be here. Let's read from, again, Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not! But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him. And at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Church, let's pray one more time. Father God, we do give you thanks for the opportunity to come to you here this morning. To be able to dive deeper into your word, Father, as Justin said, I pray, Father, that this is not a message from me, but this is from you directly. I pray, Lord, that this is a message that we don't need to just hear today, but Father, I pray, Lord, that this is a message that we can carry with us moving forward, that we may be reminded about the goodness and the patience that you have for us. And I pray, Father, that we can allow this to be impressed upon our hearts this morning. Father, we give you thanks for this time that we have to spend in your word together. Father, we love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Church, you may be seated, please. Now, as we get started, I want to I share with you guys, so again, we're not... Uh, As we dive in, we know that parables is something that God often would utilize to be able to get a message across to uh, the people that he was speaking with. And in this particular story, it's not one that's uncommon. In fact, it's a very familiar story because as we see, right, we have this farmer who has lent out his land to these tenants to be able to run the farm and to be able to have them provide fruitful crops in return. Now, as we do, it's neat to be able to see in this parable that this image actually can be broken down into four different kind of clear categories. First would be the vineyard itself. Now, the vineyard itself, this represents Israel, or in other words, God's people. It also represents the blessing of being a part of God's vineyard. Second, we have the tenants. These are the individuals who are actually running the farm, right? These were, in this particular story, Israel's religious leaders. They were in charge of leading God's people, 
Okay. Third, we have the actual servants. These were the people that the farmer was sending to be able to go to the farm. Now, in this situation, these are the prophets that were sent over the years. And then finally, when the farmer decides to send his son, we know that, in fact, in this particular story, that is God sending Jesus. Okay? Now, as he's doing this, Israel is described as God's vineyard or his vine. The imagery of the story, as it's being told, it's very familiar to the listeners. In fact, what they do is they begin to understand that this story, it's about them. And they start to be able to put a little bit of two and two together here. So they understand that the tenants in this parable, um, that they are the religious leaders surrounding them. You see, God had blessed Israel in so many different ways, and he had given them many privileges. But... Like the owner in this parable, we know um, that comes along with that is the expectation in return comes fruit from this vineyard. God desires fruit in the same way in our own lives. And that's what we get to see here. But we need to be reminded as well that as we go through this parable and we learn and understand what it has to be able to share to us in today's world, we need to be reminded that God's people, they're incredibly disobedient. I think that that's something we can all relate to, unfortunately. Um, But they oftentimes did not produce that fruit. They weren't obedient. They did not have faith and trust. Um, Instead, they chose to be unfaithful. And like the owner in this parable to the tenants, God sent prophet after prophet to be able to send the message. And yet, as we see it tied to the story, the farmer did the same thing. He sent servant after servant to them. Now, oftentimes, like I said in the story, there's no fruit. And then at the end of the day, we see what ends up happening is the farmer has to send his son as that last resort, similar to how God sends his son, Jesus, to die for us. Now, we see several different examples of this, but the bottom line is this. Similar to the servants, the prophets were rejected and they were persecuted and even some were killed. And we know this to be true. We see several different examples of this. So I'm going to have you, church, if you would, turn to Second Chronicles chapter 36. We're going to read a couple of uh, verses from Second Chronicles, verse 36. We're going to look at 14 through 16. And as we do so, we're going to start to make the connection. And what I want to do for us this morning, church, is I want to give us a background of this parable so that you have an understanding of what we can take away from this. So again, verse 14, all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord the God of their fathers sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. You see, we begin to start to see the connection and how Scripture ties this together for us. In Luke 13, it actually says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones that were sent to it. Now, I want you to take special note of this. In this parable, note how patient 
God is in this story. And again, we get to see that the mercy that was given to these tenants in this situation by not providing direct retribution for what they were doing. You see, the owner had every right to be able to send someone in immediately and take full control of the situation and to kill the people farming this land. Um, it's funny, I was, as I was preparing this message, I couldn't help but think uh, my grandparents, they've both passed, but they lived in New York and had a farm, and they actually rented out much of their property. And in this situation, it was found out that after about a three or four year period, because they had gotten a little older and didn't care as much, that they actually decided to stop following up with the people renting from them and let them not pay rent for about three or four years. Can you imagine? <laughs> I think many of us would love to be in that kind of a situation. Now, in that moment, once the children found out this situation, they went to their mom and dad, and they had to explain to them, like, you guys cannot continue to do this. This doesn't make sense. That's exactly what we see here in this story. It doesn't make sense, the amount of patience and mercy that this farmer is showing to these tenants. And yet, that's what we did. We get to see this. We get to see stunning patience and mercy. Um, as we go through this, and, and I want to make the connection here for us, that the tenants thought that when the owner of the land had finally sent his son, what their thought process was is that if we can kill the heir to the throne, this is going to allow us to be able to control that destiny. We're going to be able to be the ones to be in full control. And as we see, that is arrogance. It's blindness on their part. John McCarthy said that they wanted control over the inheritance, the religious leaders, that is. Just as the vine growers threw the owner's son out of the vineyard and killed him, the same is said of how the religious leaders throw Jesus out of Jerusalem and killed him. You see, this is a huge indictment on these folks in this particular situation because for us, we know that Jesus is aware of what's going to happen to him. And we also know that in this particular passage, we don't get a chance to be able to see what that specifically says because Luke doesn't actually record their response. However, we do get to see the, the uh, response from them in Matthew. So if you would, flip over to Matthew for me really quick. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 21. And there's going to be a couple of verses we're going to look at here. But in Matthew chapter 21, verse 41, here's their response. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. You see, they think in this situation, the people think that by getting rid of these tenants and making the people give back what they owe, right? Jesus is actually in full agreement of this response and what he should do is come and destroy them. Right? This is where they begin to realize. They start to make the connection that the story is in fact about them. Um, we see that in verse 19 as well. Because again, the belief is this, that their rejection and killing of God's Messiah would actually, and they don't realize this quite yet, but it would lead to their own destruction. You see, God would take away their place. He would take away their privilege in his vineyard, and God would give it to other people. This, for the Jews, was unfathomable. But again, still in chapter 21 of Matthew, look at verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people, producing its fruit. So you start to ask yourself, okay, so who are those other people that this is going to be given to? Now, commentators do somewhat differ as far as kind of the result here. Um, but again, as these religious leaders are rejecting Christ, 
one of the potential recipients maybe is the lowly taxpayers or the sinners. Because again, they're the ones who are more repentant towards Christ, and they're also the ones that the religious leaders are not on board with. Yet, another could be potentially the Gentiles. In this situation, we know that if Israel was going to reject Christ, then maybe he was going to take his message and kingdom to the Gentiles. Still another one? What about the future redeemed Israel? That's also a potential option, is that sometime in the future, Israel would realize the deeds that they have done and the way that they've acted, and they would then be able to be on the receiving end of that. Now, yet another option is the apostles. We know that the apostles, obviously, in this situation are with Jesus, and that if the religious leaders are going to reject and kill him, then they too would be on the receiving end. Now, we should have no issue with any of these because at the end of the day, what they do is they all reflect truth. And that's what we need to think about is because certainly the blessings and the privileges of the kingdom will be inherited by those who choose to repent and those who choose to follow and put their faith in Jesus Christ. As, again, in this story, because they rejected and killed him, they know that they too will be destroyed. And as we know, God would go on to destroy the rebellious leaders um, and apostate Israel in AD 70. The Jews would then be scattered, and they would lose their place as God's people. Now, with that said, that is our foundation of this parable and what the overall kind of meaning is. Now, what we need to do is we need to dive a little deeper at this point in time and understand what lessons we can then take from it. So there will be four lessons that we're going to take today, church. Okay? Lesson number one is this. God expects fruit from our lives. Let me repeat that. God expects fruit from our lives. In John chapter 15, verse 8, it reads this. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What a weighty phrase that is. Let me read that again, just the very end. Prove to be my disciples. You see, that's what God's expectation is for us in our lives. He expects us to bear fruit for his kingdom. What an incredible honor we have to be able to do such a thing. It comes with a burden, though, and he points that out for us right here. But the expectation is delectable kingdom fruit. And the expectation is that that's growing in our lives every single day, and it's going to be done through repentance and holiness. That's what should be shown in our lives. That's what should be growing on our tree. Now, church, if you think about the world that we live in, we live in a very affluent nation. We have so many different resources. We have so much time. And yet, how do we spend that time? Do we spend that time focused on our own idols? Or do we spend that time focused on Christ? And as Justin said in his prayer, do we think about the people that we need to be blessing and utilizing our resources for? Do we think about how we spend our time? I would argue that oftentimes we get distracted by what's going on. We get distracted by work or we get distracted by things that are coming up in our lives. And yet God's expectation is that we focus on him. We focus on the gospel. Because at the end of the day, how many of you guys have scripture that you can read and you guys can read freely, whether that be in the privacy of your own home or out in public? That's all of us. We are in such a wonderful, blessed situation to be able to do that. And yet oftentimes we don't. Oftentimes we forget about that. 
And yet that's God's desire for us. In my preparation for today's message, one of the, um, one of the messages that I heard, I, I heard an, a really neat analogy. Um, and he, he had shared that uh, in the analogy was this. He said, my family and I had gone fruit picking. And when they went, everyone who was at this particular, you know, fruit picking garden, everyone was around the first four or five trees. And he said that the reason for this was simple. Those trees were a, just, they had an abundance of amazing, healthy fruit. And they were just dropping all over the ground. They were on the trees. And you have to start to ask yourself the question of, what happens if you go to that same fruit-picking location and there aren't these abundance of fruitful trees? And you have to look and you have to try to do your best to be able to find a healthy tree just to be able to get a little bit of fruit. My encouragement to you, church, is as you go through your daily life, how are you spending your time? Because God expects us to have fruit in our lives. And the people that we come into contact with, how many times do we have the opportunity to be able to show that to them? If they are having to look for the healthy tree, if they are having to look for healthy limbs coming from us, then we need to reflect, look in the mirror, and make an adjustment. Because we are the opportunity for them to hear the gospel. One of the greatest uh, lessons I feel like I will probably ever receive in my life. Um, I played college baseball and uh, just wanted to throw that out there for you, Justin, just a little bit. But no, the joke is this, is that um, I remember my parents came out when I was a sophomore and they got to watch me play for the first time. And I remember I was, I was pitching, I was struggling, and I got pulled out of the game. And I went, I went and I threw my glove down. And in between games, my coach pulled me to the side and I, and I went to a small Division three school. It was a Christian school. And my coach looked at me and he said, Isaiah, talk to me about your experience right there. What was going through your head? Obviously, I was frustrated and I told him that. But he looked at me and he said, Isaiah, who are we playing over there? And I listed the school, but wasn't a Christian school by any means. The result that came of that was, you may be the only Bible that they get to open. What kind of an experience are you leaving with them? They know they're playing a Christian school. They at least know who we are. But they're watching you. Were you bearing fruit in your life for them to be able to see? I don't think I'll ever forget that message. So my challenge to you and my challenge to you um, today is don't let yourself be in a situation where you're only bearing a little bit of fruit here or a little bit of fruit there. God's desire is that we have delectable kingdom fruit coming forth every single day in our lives. So again, lesson number one, God expects fruit from our lives. Lesson number two, our hearts are rebellious. Um, the obstinance and arrogance of the tenants who actually rejected the servants and the son in this parable, they depict the sinful heart that was unaffected by God. The sinful heart to which we are all held captive until we are set free from Jesus Christ. You see, the heart is arrogant. And we know that to be true. Um, and we see this from the tenants too because the tenants, their response was what? No, this is mine. You don't deserve this. Despite that being the obviously not the case. Um, it's, a picture, it's a picture of a sinful heart that isn't saved by Christ. Um, the heart is so wicked and evil too. As we think about this, we understand that um, these tenant farmers... In this particular parable, um, their hearts are pictured away from Christ. And even when they are saved, and even when we are saved, we know that we can be lured back into sin. 
We know that that's the case because, again, we have these rebellious hearts. So, as a part of that, we need to be able to lean into Christ, even in these difficult situations. Yet often, we don't want anyone um, to be able to do this. So we, we, we have the privilege of having people in our lives, um, like Pastor Ryan, or the other pastors at your church, or friends, family members, small groups. Um, these are opportunities for people to be able to speak truth into our lives, to hold us accountable when we know that our heart is being rebellious. And yet, oftentimes, we want to run the other direction. In fact, it hurts the worst when we know that God himself is talking to us, and we don't even want to be able to lean into him or into God's word. We oftentimes will feel that. But again, that's what we are prone to do. So I want to encourage you to be mindful of that and to also be careful of that. So again, lesson number two, our hearts are rebellious. The third lesson that we can take from this is this. God is merciful and God is patient. You see, this passage today, as we read it, folks, it talks about destruction. It talks about killing, destroying, and yes, all of those things are true. However, um, if you read this parable and you don't see the amazing amount of mercy and patience that God puts forth for us, then you've missed something. You see, to enhance this point in Matthew and Mark's account of this parable, it says that even more than three servants were sent to be able to before the son in this story. You see, God was so patient with wayward Israel, and yet he continually sent prophet after prophet after prophet to be able to get the message to them. The desire of having fruitful obedience and faithful service and worship to him, that's what he was looking for. And yet it took multiple messengers to get that to them. And it still didn't click. You see, those who rejected and killed the prophets in a stunning, gracious show of mercy, God sends his son to be able to die for you and for me for our sins. Leon Moore said this. He said, Jesus is depicting a God who loves beyond measure and is compassionate where he has every right to be severe. I'm going to read that again for you, church. Jesus is depicting a God who loves beyond measure and is compassionate where he has every right to be severe. Now, my wife and I, so we have four kiddos, three boys and one daughter. Um, my two oldest boys are eight and six, and I'm going to give you an example of this. So imagine if my eight and six-year-old, uh, let's say that the six-year-old swipes from the, something from the eight-year-old. He steals something from him. Not a good thing to do, right? Which, by the way, never, never happens in our household. Um, but let's say that that's what happens. So the eight-year-old goes to his little brother, and he says, listen, I won't tell mom and dad as long as you give me back what is rightfully mine. All right, fair enough. Sorry I took that from you. Okay. But then the next day comes, and the exact same thing happens. The six-year-old swipes something from the eight-year-old yet again, and he tells him again, all right, two days in a row it is what it is, but I won't tell mom and dad as long as you're willing to give it back. Now, if this pattern continues, the six-year-old is in a situation where he's going to get pounded, not just by his brother, but mom and dad are going to come down with some form of punishment. He's in a difficult situation. But my point is this. If that continued to happen every single day, I would think that at some point he's going to learn his lesson. But in that situation, the eight-year-old would be showing stunning patience and mercy. 
That's what we get to see here. It doesn't make sense. He has every right to turn his little brother in for doing what he's doing. And yet, out of love and patience and mercy, he decides not to. That's what we see here. Now again, like I said, that's just a make-believe story. But one thing we do know for sure, the brother who's been having the things stolen from him is giving him that patience and that mercy. And so here's what we have to start to look at for ourselves. God's patience on sinners, it doesn't always make sense. We know that to be true. Um, But he is patient. He is kind. And so we oftentimes start to ask ourselves, well, how can he be so patient with us? Well, if you think about it and you look and you ask yourself, well, I don't understand how God can send sinners to hell or how he can judge and discipline his children because he loves them so much. How can he do this? Well, I think we're asking the wrong question. The real question is this. How can he be so patient with us? Because to be honest, we deserve judgment yesterday. If God were to act with us the way that we rightfully deserve, then we would be pulverized for our sin and we would experience death. And none of us would be here right now. That's what we deserve. And yet, we see that we get to serve a patient and merciful God. Flip with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 2. And I'll give you an example of this. So Romans chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 2, 3, and 4 is all. So Romans 2, verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, God has not yet ultimately judged this world because his desire is for people to be saved. And he knows that the work is not yet finished. So to those of you who may not have a relationship with Christ at this time, if you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, don't take his patience and kindness and mercy as him ignoring you or that he doesn't care. It's that he has that desire for you to be saved. Don't think about his lack of judgment or his, you know, non-engagement in your life to this point, or at least that's how you've maybe perceived it. That's not the case at all. It's the desire for him to be able to move forward and create that relationship with you. That is amazing grace. Be mindful and be thankful for the opportunity that you still have to choose to repent and to follow him. Now, to those of you who do have a relationship with you, um, that's myself, that's many of you in this room, that's many of you maybe listening online, um, believe in the opportunity that you have that even though we know we are fallen short sinners, that every single day we have the opportunity to provide fruit in our lives to not just ourselves and our families, but to those around us every single day. And I would plead with you, church, stop ignoring his call. Put your faith and trust in him and know that, yes, although you are a sinner and you will make mistakes, look for opportunities to be able to glorify him. I would almost ask you, how do you typically view this? Do you view God's patience and the mercy that he has for you as an opportunity to just say, yeah, you know what, it's okay. God is patient. He is going to forgive me. I'm not perfect and I'm a sinner and I know that's just the way that it is. Is that how you view this? 
Or do you view this as an opportunity that it's, man, when I recognize those moments in my life, I am going to lean into him and I am going to ask for the forgiveness because I'm the one who should be on my knees. I'm the one who's in the wrong and I need Jesus. Which one are you? Because I think too often in our lives, I know myself included, that we find ourselves just kind of rolling from one day to the next, trusting that, you know what? Yes, I have my relationship with Christ and I'm okay there. Well, that's not good enough. We need to get uncomfortable. And that's what this is. So lesson number four, God will reject those who choose to reject Christ. Think about that, church. Let that sink in. God is going to reject and he is going to judge those who reject Christ. Going back to our parable that we have here, the destruction of those evil tenants, it was just a picture of that final judgment to all the unbelievers who choose to ultimately reject Christ. And to those in this story who were listening to this parable that were being told after the shock that they had and the realization that this story was in fact about them and that they would be destroyed, God's kingdom and its privileges at this point they realize are going to be given to someone else. You see in scripture it says right there as we see, he fixed his gaze upon them. Now, I can only imagine those of you who have kids, um, or even if you don't, when your parents look at you, that moment and that look, he fixed his gaze upon them, right? That's that moment of, uh-oh, I need to really stop and think about what I'm doing. Um, that's what we have here. Let's reread verses 17 and 18 again. Um, so again, we're back in Luke chapter 20, verses 17 and 18. But he looked directly at them and he said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You see, the cornerstone, I want to elaborate on that a little bit because you might ask yourself, well, what, what exactly does that mean? The cornerstone of any building it is quite literally going to be the most important building block that you can have. It's going to support the foundation. It's going to provide that just that overall um, piece that you need to make sure that, that you have that, that base platform that is, in fact, sturdy. It even helps dictate the direction of which the building is going. And that's what we see here. Now, Jesus goes on, he quotes in Psalm 118, 22, he says, and he's telling them that he is the cornerstone that was rejected and killed by his own people, but he will come back raised in victory and he will be the head of his people. You see, folks, Jesus is the cornerstone where we have the opportunity to find sanctification, holiness, and a new life in him. That's what we have in front of us. If you'd like to flip over to Acts, I'm going to read another scripture passage here. Acts chapter 4, just verses 11 and 12. Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, it says this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, it's through Jesus' perfect righteousness and redemptive work that the people, and they just, 
that we need to be fully dependent upon him. Because without him, there is no church. Jesus is that cornerstone that all believers lean to and lean on and look to. Church, do not reject the cornerstone. You see, as we move forward here, I I want to be mindful of this, that I mentioned this previously, but Jesus is meek and he is mild and he is loving and he is kind, yes, to all of those things. But when it's time for him to judge us and to judge those who have not yet placed their faith in him, we know that this God that we serve and we have the opportunity to love so well, he is not going to be meek or mild. He is going to come and he is going to provide his wrath to those who have yet to place their faith in him. We know that to be true. And so as we reflect upon this, I want to remind you that we don't have to fall on the rock of Christ and be broken. Instead, we can stand on that rock and we can receive his salvation. John three sixteen through 18. Now this is, this is something I almost don't even need you to flip to because John three sixteen is probably the most memorized scripture verse that's out there. But how often do we think about what follows that? And so I'm going to read John three sixteen, seventeen, and 18. And church, I want you and I, I plead with you to hear these verses as though you've never heard them before. John three sixteen through 18 reads this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him and is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, church, this is the gospel. The gospel is Christ and he is our cornerstone. That's exactly what this message is. You see, Jesus knew that he was going to be rejected. He was aware that that was going to take place and he knew that he was going to be crucified on that cross for our sins. He did not deserve that punishment. We do. And yet he was aware of that that payment that was going to be made. You see, as we think about this and we reflect, that payment, it was sufficient. I want you to think about that. The fact that God sent his son to die on that cross for our sins was a payment that was sufficient for us because when he raised him from the dead, we know this to be true, and we know that that's our eternal hope. As we think about this too, I'm going to read John 3.36. It says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, God sent his Son so that he would die. He would pay that, that, part, that price so that we wouldn't have to. So again, if you don't have a relationship, church, yet with Christ, and you're listening to this message, do not be like the religious leaders in this parable. They heard the message. It was standing right in front of them. If it was a snake, it would have bit them. That's exactly what's going on right here, right now. You are listening to this message, and the scripture is communicating in a way that is very clear, just like these religious leaders. They were on the receiving end of this, They heard it, and you know what? At the end of the day, God's judgment will come. 
and that's true for you as well. One day, God's patience and his mercy will run out. So, to the unbeliever, my encouragement is this. Repent of your sins, lean into Christ, and pursue him with everything that you have. And I almost can promise you, I can almost promise you that you can probably throw a stone in this church back and forth, and you're going to find someone who's willing to share the gospel with you. That's my encouragement to you. That's my plea to you today. To the believer, behold your cornerstone. Again, let me repeat that. Behold your cornerstone, who again knew exactly what was going to happen to him. He knew exactly the time, the date that he was going to be rejected. He knew that he was going to be sent to the tenants and he was going to be killed. But as it is, God sent Jesus and Jesus willingly subjected himself to the punishment and the persecution that was going to follow. Folks, stand on Christ. Put your faith and your trust in him, knowing that when he sent his son to pay that price, he didn't have to do that, but he did so because he is a loving and patient God. I want to end with this. Let's look at verse 19 again here in Luke chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. You see, folks, they knew that Jesus was talking about them, but they were willing to put their hands on him anyways. They weren't fearful in that situation. In fact, they were more fearful of how the people would respond. And I want to be clear when I say this. What blindness. What a level of arrogance. I think too often in our own lives, we get confused and we focus on the things in today's world and we are blind to what's right in front of us with what God is teaching us. And that's what we see in this situation. God calls us to not be blind. He chooses to be able to love us anyways, despite our shortcomings. But he gives us these opportunities. Don't waste them. Pursue Christ with everything that you have and lean into the gospel because that's exactly what opportunities he's given to us every single day. And that's what we get to see here. Now, I would say, and I would encourage you, focus on those things and lean into the gospel and share it with others because I promise you there are people that need to be able to hear it. Church, let's pray. Father, we are so blessed to be able to call you our Father. What an amazing gift you have given us. We know that, God, we are so undeserving of the love that you give to us on a daily basis. And yet, Father, even when we are focused on the things of today's world, when we get caught up in the distractions of work, our family, our next vacation, Lord, I pray that we can be reminded of your great love. We can be reminded of your great, amazing patience and mercy. And despite the fact that we have such rebellious hearts and we are so easily tempted by sinful nature, I pray, Father, that you will continuously knock on that door and I pray that we are willing to open that with open and extended arms and receive you and every bit of goodness that comes along with that, Father God. We don't deserve your goodness. We don't deserve the amazing patience and forgiveness that you show to us. And yet, Father, you give it to us and you are so good for doing so. God, I pray for this church. I pray for the, the body of believers that are here. 
I thank you for the amazing things that you are doing in their lives. I thank you for the things that they are doing within the community. And I pray, Lord, that the goodness that they are putting forth is something that is a blessing to your kingdom, Father God. We are grateful for these individuals and we are grateful for your message. And Father, I pray, Lord, that just these scriptures and the passages that have been read today, Father, I pray, Lord, that they are truly impressed upon our hearts. And I pray, Father, that they will be long-lasting for your good and for the good in your kingdom. God, we love you and we give you thanks for this time. We pray these things in your name. Amen.